the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, and good morning, everybody. This is Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program, Part 2. And joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes our roundtable regulars. Uh, on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Welcome back to you, Henry. Thank you, Tom. And joining our roundtable today, always a, a pleasure, political operative Bobby Clayton Walton. Bobby, welcome back. Thank you. Now, we left off uh, talking about some things uh, from Lansing. Um, but uh, we move now to Detroit. As Detroit's mayoral candidates launch their campaigns, political consultants and community leaders expect the race will focus on long-standing challenges to broaden the reach of economic development, ensure affordable housing and neighborhood stability, and uh, improve community police relations, among other issues. While the pandemic has underscored these challenges, it hasn't necessarily changed the issues the candidates will have to address. Communications uh, strategist Karen Dumas, uh, who previously worked for former Detroit Mayor Dave Bing, said the city is wrangling with the same things that the city has wrangled with all along. Is there anything different? about the Detroit mayoral election this time? Hmm. No, but there are things that are developing to be different. There are expressions of people who are now in the mix who have become of a different political party persuasion. 
and that stirs stuff up, probably for the better, because you'll you'll get opinions from more than one one side, and that's likely to at least uh, uh, clean up some things for Black Americans who live in that area. But what does it what does it say about you're seeing some? What does it say about you're seeing some economic growth there you haven't seen for a while, and I think. Mayor Duggan's going to take credit for that. That'll be a major, yes. a significant factor, yes. I think. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. And I was thinking about um, all of the money and all of the attention that was paid to the downtown area that was redeveloped and all of the needs that might be going on in the other communities that aren't being met, much like in Flint. Yeah, but you got to thank the former governor for that because he, he went to bat for Detroit. Right, but what I'm saying, Henry, is they put a lot of money in. I was listening to the earlier interview that Tom had with uh, Shannon Lacey talking about what was going on in Flint and why she had announced to run for council. Yeah, and yeah um, let, me, let me jump in here for, for just a second, Bobby, because I want to point out I had mentioned during that interview with Shannon that I had also reached out to Wantwas Davis, and he did call me. Um, just just a, a, about 20 minutes ago uh, to apologize. He had a work emergency that prevented him from also being on. He's a former city council person who was also kept from being on the ballot in August. Yeah, and that became an issue. There were a surprising number of people who were, who were bounced off the ballot, and I've seen some, again, Facebook commentary about... Wondering exactly how or why that happened. Anyway, Bobby, go, go yeah, back yeah. to... Well, I to wanted to say that she, she pointed out what I think is probably generally recognized, and, and that is there's an awful lot of attention and development taking place in downtown Flint, but there's an awful lot of need in the outer areas that are not mm-hmm. being met. And that's why you have blight and other things that are going on, and, and cynical mistrust of the people who don't trust the government to meet their needs. Well, I think I'm going through the same thing. Yeah, they probably have already gone through that. Now, remember, yeah. we uh, there has been efforts for a number of years to uh, reduce the the city limits so that they don't have to take care of infrastructure where houses are dilapidated and um, don't pay taxes and the roads are bad and stuff like you mean that. In Flint so or they can Detroit? Have more Detroit in Flint. Well, yeah, we, they also went through that in Detroit as well. Right, right. And I don't know how they're dealing with that right now, but they, as you pointed out, uh, Paul, um, they don't have the money to That's cover it. all of the needs that they need to accomplish. We don't have and, the tax base. And we'll see what and the numbers look like with the new census. I mean, I've, I've heard yeah. projections it could be 90,000, even 80,000 people in Flint, or even less from some people. Yeah. But who knows what the numbers are going to look like. Well, see, that, those are the kind of things that they got to deal with. And they're always going to be habitual problems because you have less income than you need to run the services of Flint. So you've got to... You're going to be borrowing? This is, this is the point where uh, Barry Simon, when he used to be on the show as our resident cynic, would, <laughs> w- he, he would weigh in and say, burn it all down and start over. That's a good solution. I was just thinking that, um, that one of the 
the problems, and I criticize Flint for this, is when you bring in uh, your attention to those organizations and those developments that don't pay any property taxes, like higher, um, higher education That's institutions, right. health care institutions, uh, religious institutions, you're bringing in uh, big development, but they're, they're drawing on your services, but they're not paying any taxes. Yeah, yeah I, I used to have a time when I was when I was talking about that in 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 class, and I tell them to look out the window. This is one of the buildings on the Mott campus, and see how many buildings actually paid taxes. I mean, you had the cultural center, you had all the schools there, but you, from what you saw, the, you, there's a lot of development, a lot of things going on, but there were very few of those were really paying taxes, and that's yeah, true for a lot of older cities. But those yeah. are essential things that we got to keep going. Schools, you can't oh, yeah, no, they're, they're critical. They're yeah. critical. We do, but you absolutely got to mix in there businesses that are going to be able to pay taxes. Uh, Maybe we should uh, ask churches to pick up some of the tabs. Well, I've been a fan of consolidating can... governments too. I think that's that's one way. Yes. That's one thing to look consolidating at. Consolidating governments. They must be able to bite the bullet. This is this is going to happen. If we don't do it in this generation, the new people will. They are out there to survive. Always, always an optimist, Henry. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, that's how it has to be. That's why we have change. Well, <laughs> Senator Ed McBroom, a Republican from Vulcan, not the, the city in Michigan, not the planet, uh, blasted a statement issued by Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson that he said misstated the intention of one of the bills that was uh, considered by. Uh, his committee, McBroom, had clarified the aim of the legislation before Benson released her statement in a news release issued nearly two hours after the committee meeting began. Benson said that a bill under consideration would stop ballot tabulation before all votes have been counted. Benson and McBroom have a history of feuding, by the way. In early April, Benson declined McBroom's invitation to testify at a Senate oversight hearing on election audits, voicing concerns that the hearing would provide a platform for misinformation about the election. Are elections reforms like these in Michigan and around the country fixing something that was broke or breaking something that was fixed? <laughs> I think they're breaking something. I've read a lot of the legislation yeah. that's currently yeah. on, on the table here, and I can't see any improvement. I actually see a lot of possible pain. And, and it adds a burden to the people working the elections. It adds a burden to the financial uh, parts of, of working the elections. It adds a burden on the, uh, the voters, many of them who won't be able to comply with some of the requirements because of disability, age, location, and other issues. And why are we, why are we trying to adopt legislation that doesn't make things better? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the idea that there was all these kind of flaws in this last election were, for the most part, disproven. There, there were, I, I'm, I'm really struck with how well all those election workers around the country handled the pandemic. I mean, there were a lot of changes, a lot of, a lot of last-minute things they had to do. But when push came to shove, they did a remarkable job. And as I said before, I think still maybe our, pro, our most honest election was the last one. For all the controversy about, you know, 
frauds and stolen elections and everything else. It was a very, very honest election and very well run. Right. The bottom line. Right. And there are too many people that don't believe that's true. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on. I think I can squeeze this in before the break. Despite the coronavirus pandemic that at one point shut down most of the Michigan economy, state residents as a whole enjoyed the biggest boost to their personal incomes in 26 years in 2020, according to a report released Wednesday. Now the state is projected to enjoy billions of dollars in budget surpluses based on massive federal stimulus payments and current spending plans, the Senate Fiscal Agency said. A central question is whether Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the Republican-controlled legislature can agree on how to spend the billions Michigan has been allocated under the Federal American Rescue Plan. Uh, Budget bills are working their way through the legislature, but Whitmer and state Republican leaders remain far apart on many priorities. Despite massive unemployment, about 1.1 million people in Michigan had lost their jobs by April 2020. And despite the fact that many individuals in Michigan suffered, overall personal income in Michigan grew 7.4 percent in 2020, according to the report. That's the biggest surge in state income since 1994, and it is almost entirely because of federal stimulus checks and supplemental unemployment insurance payments. Even after adjusting for inflation, personal income grew 5.7 percent in Michigan last year, according to the report. Also adjusted for inflation, Michigan's personal income is expected to increase 0.4 percent this year, decline 3.5 percent in 2022, and then grow 1.9 percent in 2023. How will the fact that people at the top and bottom of the wage scale did better financially during the pandemic shutdown impact economic recovery post-COVID-19? Hmm. I think it helped uh, people at the bottom, you know. I, that's they're where spending we the grow. money, aren't they? Yeah. If they're spending the money, then it, it helps the economy. It would be employing yes. people. Yeah, the people at the bottom need to rise up a little bit, you know, uh, that reduces uh, money that's set aside for welfare and other economic stimulus that people say that they need at the bottom. And that helps uh, to create a pathway for more uh, employment because there'll be more money in the economy. Yeah, I, I think it helps a little bit. It's truly amazing how many help wanted signs there are everywhere now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Realize that they're they're everywhere. Those stimulus, the stimulus mm-hmm. dollars are not going to be there forever. You know, when they disappear, yes. we're going to see some changes there. And I, I think that will probably take care of the, you know, the employment uh, issues right now. Well, okay, we're... I've heard people, um, well, rail, I guess is the right word, about the fact that people. There, there are help wanted signs out, and people are, are not applying for these jobs, and they seem to forget that until we get the schools open full time, right. all That's the right. time, and childcare is no longer an issue, you're not going to see a lot of women out there applying for a lot of these jobs, which are mostly service industry jobs. That's an interesting. That's an interesting observation, Bobby, and we should dig down on that a little bit. But we have to take a break here. We'll we'll pick it up right there when we return. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze in a few words. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. More armchair politics. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Jonah Bodie. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics uh, continues now with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by uh, Bobby Clayton Walton. And just before the uh, break, we were talking a little bit about uh, what economic recovery post-COVID-19 would look like. And uh, Bobby was making the point that a lot of women, because of uh, child care, have left the workforce and won't return until schools are fully open. Bobby, do you want to pick it up there? Well, uh, yeah, I think that's a reasonable um, excuse for people who are not applying for jobs or not choosing to go back to work. And um, and Henry's favorite, Facebook, a lot of people are posting (laughs) critical critical things about, oh, these people are so lazy and they're just collecting their unemployment and they don't want to go to work. And and I'm thinking, you know, if you haven't had children that you're responsible for caring for who cannot care for themselves, you don't understand the challenge for the women who are in our service industry. Well, and some people are are raising a concern that um, relief payments have been uh, economically better for some of these people than the wages that are being offered. That also. But that's a, to me, that's a secondary issue, probably. Well, but I, but I heard a report that 8 million people are out of work and uh, there are 8 million jobs out there, <laughs> and, and yeah. they're not matching up. But there's a lot of uh, dross in the system. There are people who actively and perpetually game the system, and they're good at it. And they but can again, use but, race, they can use gender, they can use loss of income, they can use health care, all of those. An institution who would listen to their points of view do respond favorably to their request because that's what they have to do. But it's, about, it's, 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 it's about more than just the money. I mean, the money is a factor, clearly, but I mean, clear, child care, fear about the virus itself for those who are still not vaccinated. There's a lot of other things that are feeding into this. And, yeah. I, and I suspect that, you know, given time as we kind of gradually work our way out of the pandemic, we're going to see but, those, all of those glitches go by the wayside. But I think the thing that creates the mistrust in setting money aside are people who game the system. You can have one person out of ten gaming the system, and the argument is that everybody games in hyperbole the system, and that's the problem. I was just thinking about the grand jury that was just convened in New York to investigate Donald Trump's gaming the system. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a good that's a good segue to our next piece where we uh, see how good or bad things are doing in Washington. Um, President Joe Biden, having weathered the first major foreign crisis of his presidency that tested the bounds of his decades-long friendship with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu touted Thursday a ceasefire deal that appears to end the bloody 11-day conflict between Israel and Hamas. In hastily arranged remarks from the White House delivered one hour before the truce was due to take effect, Biden credited his administration's own quiet and relentless diplomacy along with efforts by Egypt in arriving at the agreement. 
We've held intensive high-level discussions hour by hour literally with Egypt, the Palestinian Authority, and other Middle Eastern countries with an aim of avoiding the sort of prolonged conflict we've seen in previous years when the ho- when hostilities have broken out, Biden said. The conflict and subsequent ceasefire provided an early glimpse at how Biden, a president more versed in U.S. foreign policy than any of his recent predecessors, will handle rapidly evolving foreign crises. His approach emphasized private diplomacy over proactive public statements, even as he came under sustained criticism from fellow Democrats for not speaking out more forcefully. Is President Biden's foreign policy likely to get more bipartisan support than his domestic policies? I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm leaning in that direction too, and I think that there's a, there's certainly a clear role that quiet kind of role can accomplish an awful lot more than bombastic statements. Yeah, and I think that that's very badly needed because the rest of the world have little sympathy for how we run our government. We need to be together on that, and Republicans and Democrats need to come out with a combined uh, focus on dealing with foreign policy. Well, I think Biden's experience in foreign policy over the years that he has been a public servant certainly plays a role in um, in his ability to not only know strategy, but also to know who the players are and how they can be uh, spoken to or how they, I don't want to use the word manipulated, but how they can be um, made more amenable. Yes. I agree. Yeah, I think uh, foreign policy is is from what I've witnessed over the years uh, from a distance seems to be one of relationships. Yep, it always yeah. is. Uh, relationships uh, explain that because our Be- foreign policy between, has been between somewhat nebu- nebulous. Between okay. leaders, you know, and, and this is a case where for the first time, maybe in a couple of d- decades, we have someone who actually has relationships built up with world leaders before entering the Oval Office. And who also understands how the State Department works in some ways. Uh, really understands the mechanics of how so much, so much of the policy is truly made. Yeah, you, it's like we talked about earlier, who's, whose phone calls are you going to answer? Um, if you have a relationship with somebody, even though you may not agree on a lot of issues, they will agree to take their phone calls. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that makes uh, the impression of your opponent look better than it would otherwise look. If you do get people yeah, from some you, also, you always want to make... You always want to make them look like um, they agreed to something that was their idea in the first place. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's diplomacy. That's yes. right. <laughs> how how was it? Uh, how was it described? Diplomacy is the art of telling someone to go to hell in such a way that they look forward <laughs> to the trip. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's absolutely true. <laughs> It works personally as well as whether nationally and internationally. 
Well, the intern who helped save former U.S. Representative Gabrielle Gabby Giffords in the minutes after she was critically wounded in a 2011 shooting is running to represent her old Arizona district in Congress. Arizona Democratic State Representative Daniel Hernandez announced his bid Thursday to represent Arizona's 2nd Congressional District. Hernandez joins a growing competitive Democratic primary set for August 2022 that includes fellow State House Representative Randy Fries, uh, a Navy veteran and trauma surgeon who operated on Giffords and others injured in the shooting, and Arizona State Senator uh, Kristen Engel, a University of Arizona environmental law professor. The seat is currently held by Democratic uh, Representative Ann Kirkpatrick, who announced in March she will not seek re-election and instead retire at the end of her term. Is connection to Gaffey Giffords a prerequisite for running in the Democratic uh, primary in Arizona's 2nd Congressional sure District? sounds like it. <laughs> I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. She's a person of record. Yeah, I would certainly appeal to the people who supported her in the first place. Yeah. And it, and it reflects the changes of Arizona. I mean, Arizona used to be this, you know, absolutely hard Republican state. Now, a lot less so. Well, that's going to be an the, interesting uh, primary. Uh, you've got two out of the three candidates. One was uh, an aide to her that was present at the shooting, and the other was the trauma surgeon who operated yeah. on her. <laughs> that's, yeah, right. That's the I, I, think I, would vote, yeah, I think I would vote for the aide because he has some experience. But yeah. um, do they have... Is it a plurality in the primary or a majority? Do you know? I don't. I'm going to, I'm going to guess plurality, but I'm not sure. I'm yeah, not sure. I'm not yeah. sure about that either, Bobby. It's a it's a fair question. Um, but yeah, so um, one of the three has an equal chance. Be worth watching to see what, if if Giffords endorses anybody. Yeah, I bet she doesn't. Yeah, and that, yeah, uh, and, that, and that might not be a good idea because. The population may be evenly divided. She could, it could be a risk for her. Well, Supreme Court well, uh, just... She's not coming back into office anyway, but I think um, you don't want to... You don't want to muddle in something where you haven't been part of the process in such a long time True. that you may not really have a good eye on exactly what the issues are. Yeah. Well, Supreme Court justices have long criticized each other's legal reasoning, but they are increasingly impugning their colleagues' motives and sincerity in a way that matches the current political climate. The Roberts Court, with three appointees of former President Donald Trump now in place, appears to be entering a new era of personal accusation and finger-pointing in the past, a single justice, such as Antonin Scalia, could be conspicuous for his short-fuse rhetoric or a single controversy, for example, involving race, could stand out for provoking cross-charges. The current pattern may be a sign of deeper fractures on cases as the nine finish their annual term over the next month. The trend belies the justices' public assertions that they all get along and believe each operates in good faith. It's not simply that they are swapping invective. As they speak of dealing in good faith, some appear to doubt it. Many people speculated during the uh, confirmations of the newest three members of the court that it would become extremely partisan. 
That didn't seem to happen during their first session. But is the honeymoon over? There are some worrisome signs that that, that might be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, it would be interesting to see uh, what happens in the next few months, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I, think I just I saw interesting. There's an interesting article in this month's Atlantic talking about Kavanaugh that uh, at least suggested there was a possibility he might be a more of a surprise than some people expected. Now, again, it remains to be seen, but at least the speculation was that he might be not quite as hard right as uh, as some people thought he might be as things develop. Is he the but new again, candidate? Yeah. You've got a 6-3 to three majority there for a conservative majority. As yeah. long as the country remains in free fall, it is difficult to predict with some degree of certainty what the next steps are going to be for the court or the Congress. We just, we just there's just too much uncertainty out there. Well, there are some hot-button issues coming up next year, the abortion case, some gun issues, uh, yeah. I think an affirmative action case, and some really big issues that could be, could be dynamite for the 2022 campaign. Yeah, I don't know if I'd want to be uh, Chief Justice Roberts in those cases because there's a lot of possibility for change, and he may not want some of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's not big on change. He's tried to keep the court above the partisan fray if he can, but... Or as Brendan Beery and I put it, uh, when when we get together and chat about the Supreme Court, um, Roberts is uh, an institutionalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think he likes making waves. <laughs> well, he's uh, also is looking for stability, and you know the court should be, the court should be isolated. It should be. Well, he, he doesn't want to see to have the court seen as a a pawn of a yeah, uh, circus of, of the of either the Republican mm-hmm. White House, a Republican yeah. White House, or Republican Party, or anything else. So I, I, but but again, he's only one vote out of out of nine. And, uh, but he has a lot of influence. True, true. Yeah, the, and who assigns the uh, task of writing the majority opinion? Uh, the chief the justice, justice is in the majority, or yeah. the senior justice if, yeah. if he or she is in the majority. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's a uh, <laughs> here's a piece that's going to sound like we're we're starting the X-Files early. Um, in December 2017, two videos emerged that showed Navy pilots encountering mysterious spherical objects that appeared at first glance to move through the air in ways that baffled experts. A third, released, released in March of 2018, depicted a similar encounter. Everyone who watched, including the pilots who filmed them, had the same question. What exactly are these things? Last week, a Navy official publicly called these mysterious objects unidentified aerial phenomena, giving name to the inscrutable little dots and reigniting scrutiny around the unidentified flying objects, a term the Navy does not want to use, even though the objects that are flying cannot be identified. The Navy designates the objects contained in these videos as unidentified aerial phenomena. Joseph uh, Gratisher, spokesman for the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare, told the Black Vault blog. 
a massive civilian repository of government documents mostly obtained by Freedom of Information Act requests. Black Vault's uh, founder, John Greenwald Jr., told the Washington Post that he believed the remarks were significant because for the first time, the Navy acknowledged the existence of the objects in the videos on the record and admitted that the department could not identify them. Greenwald also reported that the videos were not originally intended for public release. Because of this revelation, Gratisher's comments to Black Vault have ricocheted across the internet this week, getting picked up everywhere from popular mechanics, quote, the Navy says those UFO videos are real, unquote, to the front page of the Drudge Report, quote, update, Navy says it's tracking UFOs, unquote. Is this admission too little too late? <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what we would do about it. <laughs> yeah, at this point, I, you know, what one thing that struck me is sounds that, like a job uh, for the space force. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> what always mystifies me is when you see the videos of that. There are always this, these little fuzzy dots, and yet, as far as I know, we've got the technological ability to take pictures from outer space that'll read license plates practically on the ground. But all the, the UFO stuff are these very vague, let's say, fuzzy little dots bouncing around the air. Uh, why don't we have better pictures of them? I don't know. Uh, I think it's a conspiracy. <laughs> well, not just, uh, you know, the UFOs, but with the technology that we have now, why isn't there a good picture of Bigfoot? That's also true. That's, that's right. Well, I see some really good pictures. I've only seen that without one picture that gets run over and over again of him walking through. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like a Polaroid of a guy in an ape suit walking through. That's the... right. That's right. <laughs> it's interesting. I think, my daughter, I think my daughter has one of the plaster casts of his footprint. <laughs> oh. You know, it's interesting that Tom was referring to the technology to determine whether something is a real that is tangible, can be touched. It has mass to it, or whether it's an illusion. We have the technology to determine that, and we have never said anything about sending uh, the technology to decide whether this has mass or not, or it just it could be spots, sunspots, or, by sunspots or, or something. Or are we sending... Are we figuring out what it is and not telling anybody? Yeah, or <laughs> yeah, well, well, uh, that's why we have that. around Nevada someplace. I don't know. Yeah. That's why we have uh, to ask these questions uh, to people who don't want to talk about it. Well, this is uh, this is making you know making its way around various uh, news outlets because for the first time there's well the first time since Project Blue Book that any kind of an official has admitted that investigations are going on into these things and that there are real things that are appearing, not identified. And, you know, of course, uh, who was it? Uh, Harry Reid, I think, that <laughs> came came close to admitting that, that he'd had an alien abduction or something. Oh, right. <laughs> I think yeah. it was Harry Reid. There was a wonderful yeah. article in the New Yorker magazine a couple of weeks ago that went into great detail about this whole thing, about the government and about um, one woman who has pretty much made it her 
professional career to do all of the research and the writing about what she has found and what people have said. So um, I just think when they pick me up out of bed at night, they have to remember I can't be pulled through a wall. <laughs> but there's, uh, it does make sense when you talk about space debris. You know, things are breaking up out there. We put a lot of stuff out there. <clears throat> and they're in orbits where, uh, and those orbits are declining all the time. And until they reach the critical point, yeah, where they did, fall did, back. Did we have that Chinese rocket burn. coming into the atmosphere about yeah, a couple yeah. weeks ago? Yeah. So, so we, yeah. But, but yet nobody said, well, we have sent uh, detectors out there to determine whether this thing has mass or is it just a spot out there. It seems like we and should be able that. to notice them before they get here. Yeah. <laughs> With we, all the stuff oh, we've got out there. They're already here. Oh, there you go. <laughs> now that's scary. They're, they're all they're all staying at a at a bed and breakfast in Atlantis. Um, that's right. They're <laughs> they're running they're running our tourist industry. <laughs> um, we just have about two minutes left before we go to break and then go on to the actual X Files, but I did want to give everybody a chance to to weigh in for for about 30 seconds on uh, yesterday's anniversary of George Floyd's death in uh, Minneapolis uh, after being restrained literally to death. Yeah, I was going to say, I, oh, let's, let's hope that this means some meaningful change. It really does seem like that the, 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 the sense of change has taken hold, and you're seeing <laughs> some law enforcement officials, some local here, who, who seem to take it seriously? Uh, the only the only hope I have is that I hope it's long lasting. This this is not a a one year event where you know five years from now we're, we're, we've forgotten all about this and we're back to the same situation that we've had for so long. And Henry, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm mildly optimistic that it will mean at least some meaningful change. Henry, yeah, I, I, I received. I just wanted to get this out quickly. I received some information from a friend of mine who still lives in Montgomery County, Maryland, about the Fraternal Order of Police there that is suing their county council because the county council passed a resolution or a law, really, that forbade any uh, excessive use of force, chokeholds, provided holds. They specified all of the things that the police cannot do. And the FOP is suing them, saying that those are conditions of work and that they're bargainable, that those are things that should be part of the negotiation. Mm. And I was just appalled. Yeah, I heard that story. That's right. Henry, quickly, we've got about one minute. Okay. But I think that there's change, guys, and change for the better. And it's coming from the right sources of, of the nation. Um, it used to be 20 years ago, only about 35 to 40% of the people thought that we had real racial issues in this country. And now 70% of the people think we have true race problems in this country. If that's true, the, the, we're on the right track for solution. But there's an obligation for people of color to make sure that when we see progress, leave it as it is and let it grow. Do not distangle it. Do not be more critical, but join a positive discussion of how we bring about the the expected end and the consequences. 
Thanks, Henry. We're going to take a short break. Let our broadcast partners squeeze in a few words. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Jonah Bode. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them, in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the final segment of today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. The actual X-Files, which are those uh, weird and wacky stories that uh, sometimes seem too strange to be true, but they are. Uh, Police in Alabama have issued an arrest warrant for a man in connection with the bizarre theft of a Confederate monument that was taken from an Alabama cemetery and found in Louisiana. Selma police charged Jason Warnick uh, with theft in connection with the mysterious disappearance of the chair-shaped monument. Dallas County District Attorney Michael Jackson said Monday, The strange saga began March 20th when a representative of the United Daughters of the Confederacy reported to police that the Jefferson Davis Memorial Chair had gone missing from Live Oak Cemetery located in a Riverside city known worldwide for its links to the Civil Rights Movement. The chair-shaped monument, which the uh, United Daughters of the Confederacy valued at a half a million dollars, was recovered in New Orleans. Where does this fit in the uh, debate about Confederate monuments? <laughs> I, that's, that's strange. <clears throat> It's very strange. Do you suppose one of those UFOs yeah. had some sort of magnet? Yeah, maybe that was it. <laughs> yeah, they just lifted it up and transported it and dropped it. Picked up by UFOs and moved around. Maybe. Yeah, that's a pretty, that's a pretty heavy piece of Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, here's one, and I think this one made its way around to uh, some different news sources. Australia's oldest ever man has included eating chicken brains among his secrets to living more than 111 years. Now he's called bird brains. <laughs> that was good, Henry. Good, Henry. <laughs> Retired cattle rancher Dexter Kruger on Monday marked 124 days since he turned 111, a day older than World War I veteran Jack Lockett was when he died in 2002. Kruger told Australian uh, Broadcasting Corporation in an interview at his nursing home in the rural Queensland state town of uh, Roma days before the milestone that a weekly poultry delicacy had contributed to his longevity. Do you want to live to 111 bad enough to eat chicken brains? <laughs> I don't think I want to live to 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. How in the world did you get a chicken brain? I guess you have to open the chicken head. <laughs> well, it, I, I saw one post, I think, on Facebook, or, or maybe it was a, a Twitter post that was part of the article that I read um, that said that's why you see chickens running around with their heads cut off. <laughs> well, I think that's a very foul story. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a cool story. I was, I, I was almost too chicken to to read it. Um, a bicyclist cruising past live TV cameras tried to snap a selfie, but with one hand on her cell phone, one in the air, and none on the handlebars. Well, it didn't exactly go according to plan. The result was captured in the background of a live TV shot in which MSNBC's Guad Venegas uh, reported from Santa Monica, California on how nurses were reacting to the latest guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on wearing masks. And this person almost needed a nurse herself. <laughs> is, is this more proof? That you shouldn't text and drive. I think that, so. <laughs> very true. That drives the plane home. You shouldn't take selfies on your bicycle. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what to say about that. That's just too dumb. <laughs> well, I was going to say that's upstaging. But what do they call it when you get in the middle of a, of a picture? Or there's a photo bombing. Yeah, photo bombing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's photo bombing. When she actually bombed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was kind of a photo crash. Um Okay, this is one of the weirdest ones that I've that I've ever had in uh I, I almost decided not to include it, but unraveling the mystery be behind a very erect giant carved into a hillside has been hard but a recent discovery is hopefully leading scientists closer to the naked truth the cartoonish ancient figure known as the cern abbas giant is sculpted into the chalk hillside above cern abbas in dorset england basically it's big it's holding a club and it's got a phenomenal phallus. <laughs> For centuries, people have speculated about the age and meaning of the giant honed into the uh, hillside. In July 2020, the BBC reported that scientists had extracted soil samples from the giant to determine its age, but the results were delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Last week, the National Trust finally revealed that the giant was probably first created in the late Saxon period. The team of archaeologists told the Washington Post that the carving was most likely made in A.D. 908. Scientists are unsure, but Allison uh, Sheridan, a freelance archaeological consultant based in Edinburgh, told the new scientist she has a theory. It would almost seem to be an act of resistance by local people to create this fantastically rude pagan image on the hillside, Sheraton said, adding, it's like a big two fingers to the abbey. <laughs> Could it be that this is simply ancient porn? <laughs> Maybe that was it, yeah. I think it is. I did read the article, by the way, because I have that magazine. <laughs> but, 
it was quite interesting to read that. Um, and some of the things that people said about it or did, uh, just very interesting. Well, I, was, I wasn't sure I wanted to share it because it, it was a little on the body side, but um, <laughs> but it's just, uh, well, it's, uh, you know, too big to fail. Did you, see, <laughs> did, you <laughs> see the, did you see the photograph of it? I did. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Some of the theory said, well, maybe he was holding a severed head, you know, because it's the way his left hand was out, or maybe he was, you know, holding this or doing that because they... They want to interject some other symbolism in there. And here was his belly button, and they think that the phallus has actually intersected with it, and, you know, all that other stuff. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was, that was a, a strange one. Well, that wraps it up for uh, the X-Files and uh, Armchair Politics for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And I, I want to say thanks, of course, to uh, our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. Guys, thanks so much. Always good Thank to be here. And, uh, and Bobby, it's always a treat when you uh, join the roundtable. Bobby Clayton Walton, thanks for participating today. Thanks. Thank I really Bobby. enjoyed it. I always enjoy it. It's good to get together with you guys once in a while. Um, and, Thank you. And we good talk just, to you, Bobby. We just, just have a couple minutes left before, uh, before I have to shoot down the hall to the living room. But... Um, I, I did an interview early this morning. I'm not sure when it's going to air, and it was uh, really kind of interesting because it came up in our discussion uh, uh, sort of parenthetically today talking about uh, the Foreign Service and, and uh, people in embassies. And I interviewed uh, a uh, former ambassador who, um, hmm. his name was... Uh, Thomas Arm Brewster, he has a new book out called How to Become an Ambassador. He spent over 20 years in foreign service, including um, some years as ambassador to the Marshall Islands under uh, Barack Obama. And it was, and it was very interesting, him talking about, um, about the career of foreign service. And, you know, we hardly ever hear about um, the people who work in the embassies unless they're being thrown out of the country. <laughs> Yeah. You know, okay. and and it was it, it's a very interesting conversation. So watch for that. Tom Armbruster will be coming up sometime in the next week or two, because um, it was such a, a an interesting interview. But thanks again, uh, gang. It's um, I, I think it's the uh, best roundtable on radio, and it's because of you guys. Well, you know, you know how to pick us. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Bye-bye, guys. Take care. Well, thank you. Take care. See you next time. Bye-bye, Bobby Henry. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to uh, all of the contributors to Armchair Politics and uh, to my uh, guest earlier this morning, um, Shannon Lacey, talking about the Flint City Council election. Well, that's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories, and that always lets me know that it's time to head down the hall to the living room. But I'll be back tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. In the meantime, good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.